Good morning, Woodland Hills. Good to see all of you, and good to know that you guys online are visiting us online and being part of this as we uh, get ready for this message. Uh, I had been walking with a cane the last month or so because of back issues, as I shared uh, in the last couple of weeks. And one of the things I'm discovering about canes is that they're a pain in the neck. Because you don't, like, you don't know where to put them. Like, where do I put this? Where I, because wherever you put it, you knock it over, and then you got to bend over, pick it up, which defeats the purpose. The cane is supposed to help your back, not make more work for it. And so, we're, yesterday, I'm, no, the day before yesterday, I put it next to my chair, and I'm doing my computer stuff, and I get up, and I bump this stupid cane, and it falls on my laptop computer and breaks the screen. It's like, oh, I can't know it. So someone invent a cane that can just be upright. Somehow it just should just like be able yes. Last week, you know, is there such an invention? Someone come and share. After the service, come and share the stand-up alone cane. Because place your bets, how long will that be there before it falls over? We'll see. I think last week it lasted about 10 minutes. So uh, I've shared how Shelly and I have been through this kind of ordeal, unusual suffering ordeal. Uh, unusual patch of life, and, and, and so we decided that it'd be a good time to have some reflections on suffering and just kind of be thinking about it. Not so much in the problem of evil kind of way that we do around here with some frequency, but talking about the meaning of suffering and how it can be used to our advantage. Uh, let me just say, I, I, I want to really appreciate all the love and the prayers that I felt from the Woodland Hills community towards Shelly and I. Um, you know, this, some of the cards and emails were wonderful. And some people brought over food. And I, we just really feel love. So God bless you guys. We love Woodland Hills and this, this community. I, I, I will say that um, the struggle is not over. We're still, I in particular, uh, am in this, uh, this, this funky season. Um, I have never had to deal with this level of pain for this long. Uh, and those of you who have chronic pain know that there's a unique dimension of, of irritableness that comes with chronic pain. It just doesn't go away. And, and, uh, and it's, it's like this. So you have to choose all the time to be in a good mood. It doesn't come natural. You've got to choose to be above it and, and, and the rest. And I, it's, I've dealt with pain a lot before, but never this long and never this, this uh, intense. And so I'm looking forward to either being healed or having that back surgery, one of the two. And I cover your prayers on that. Now, I share all that just to share that this, I, I, I say that because I, I want you to know that this is not coming out of a theoretical place for me. Uh, this, this is coming out of a raw place for me. Um, this is stuff I need. And so these messages are kind of me just sort of processing out loud as I dig deeper into the word, you know, to, to just get my head around the New Testament's understanding of suffering, I'm, I'm just reflecting out loud. And in particular, what I'm really, you know, going after is throughout the New Testament, you have this refrain. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dominant motif that when you come under trials and tribulations, give thanks to God. Count it all joy. Because God can use that to develop your character and God can use that to further his purposes in this world. And so... Today, I want to go take, a, take that thought just another step deeper on, on this. And I'll share this right at the very beginning that I have over the last couple of years become more and more aware of just this, this, this thing you find in the Apostle Paul three times in the New Testament. He says to a congregation, um, I labor to present you fully mature in Christ. 
I want to present you fully mature in Christ. On that day, to the Galatians, he wonders, have I labored in vain? And, and, and there's a sense of loss there. I, I need to present you fully mature on that day. And there's just a sense that I, I'm aware of that part of my job in the kingdom ministry here is that I think I influence people and I have to take responsibility for wherever God draws my way to be influenced. And that's true of the whole pastoral team. We're responsible for you guys to be as fully mature on that day when Christ returns as possible. And that's on me. And I feel the gravitas of that. Not in a fear kind of a way, but just like, whoa, it's an awesome opportunity, but there's also gravitas to that. I, I, I think that seriously. Uh, I need you guys to be fully mature on that day, because my neck's on the line. <laughs> All right? So for my sake, will you grow up? <laughs> but I got to grow up first, because I'm supposed to model this. And so I want to share this passage here. And, and, and this message here, I just feels to me, honestly, it feels to me like it's one of the most important things when it comes to maturing in Christ. And I think it's the thing that we lack the most and need the most. And I didn't plan this message to feel like that. It, it just sort of evolved. In fact, even when we went through the rehearsal last night, it didn't quite feel like that. But this morning, I'm really sensing this. So listen up on this. Um, it's a message that has particularly convicted me. So I'm going to start with reading this. 1 Corinthians 9. Paul, on occasion, as he's talking about the Christian life, he uses this athletic metaphor. We are to consider our life sort of like an athlete in training. And he says this, 9, 24, and 25. Athletes exercise self-control in all things. They're disciplined. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we do it to receive an imperishable wreath, a reward. So I do not run aimlessly, nor do I box as though beating the air. Now my thing came off here. Hang on. All right. So he, he likened the Christian life to this athlete in training. And I got thinking about this. You know, back in the day, back in my day, I was quite the athlete, I want you to know. You maybe wouldn't know that now, but I used to really get into running. Ran crazy distances, marathons, ultra marathons, and, 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 and just got into it. Maybe that's one of the reasons why I'm having problems now. I don't know. But um, I was so disciplined. I, I, I would, on Saturday mornings, during the racing season, I, I would, on Saturday mornings, get up at 5 o'clock to drive down to Afton Alps to meet my friends at 6 o'clock, and we'd run for five or six hours. Cover 30, 40 miles. Um, yeah, just, we'd do these laps. And then I would... Uh, uh, for a couple of years, I would, a couple times a week, run to Bethel. I taught at Bethel, and, and I lived six miles away from it. So I'd run six miles there in the morning, take a shower, teach my classes, and run six miles back. I was disciplined. I, I would, for certain races, I, I, you, you, you want to get your body in the condition it will be in when you're doing these ultra marathons. So you have to, like, train your body to run on, when, it, when it's run out of your glucose and, and, and you're running on, on, on nothing. And so I would go take three days, and I'd fast for those three days, eat nothing for those three days, and I'd run 20 miles each day. And that third day, those 20 miles are torture, I want you to know. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's the last thing you feel like doing, but that's what you're going to feel like at mile 50 in a 100-kilometer race. Because I'm 100 kilometers, 61 miles. And so you, you, I would train myself. It's actually such discipline. 
and I loved it. Now, why did I do that? I'm really not sure. <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's just like, uh, it, was, it was crazy. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I love the feeling of running when you're in, when you're in really good shape. Some of you know this feeling when you, you feel like you can just go forever. You're flying. I haven't felt that for a couple decades, but, but you're just flying. You're floating. I just love that feeling uh, over hills. I love being out in nature, and, and it would be one of the ways I would commune with God. Just running out in the, you know, I love ultra marathons that were in the woods and, and 50-mile trail races and things like that. Just loved it out there. I love competition. Because uh, it, 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 it forces you to be your best. I, I, I see competition as we're helping each other completely push ourselves to the max. And, and I always loved being like just trashing my body, pushing myself as far as I could go. You do 10 one-mile intervals at a certain pace and you can't you think of doing another, but let's just throw it in the back of it. Let's do 11. Just to see how much you can trash your body. Like, how close to death can you get? Maybe there's something sick and morbid about me, but I don't know. But I, I, I love that feeling. It's laying it all down in the line. And, it, frankly, I, I liked winning. I, uh, I, I was pretty good at this. Um, I, I never was that fast, but, but I, I had a really good heart, and, and, and I could you know, get me, put me at a certain slow pace, and I could go forever. I had a lot of endurance. And so I did you know, fairly well. I was never going to be one of these elite runners because God, God had the sense of humor of giving me a runner's heart but a wrestler's body. I, I, you, know, you have to be like really petite and skinny and stuff to really be great. And I never was that. In fact, the only reason I even got into running was because I was tired of, 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 of being in my brother's shadows in football. So I went off across country to make a name for myself in that sport and, 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 and did okay with it because I, 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 I got a lot of endurance. And so I... One time, in fact, this is why I was doing those three days fasting and 20 miles uh, uh, running each time, is I was training for the 1991 uh, 100K World Championships, which were being held for the first time in, Minnesota, in, in the United States, and happened to be held, held in Minnesota, and so I did that. And um, it, this kind of taps into the, it gives me a chance to brag, but there's actually a point to this, um, that you know, the joy and suffering thing, in this race, this 100-kilometer race, I, I loved it. It started in New Finland, Minnesota, and ran down to two harbors, and it was against the wind the whole way. There was like 30-mile-an-hour gusts, and we had to go against the wind. And I always did better in adverse conditions because I was stronger than most of the other runners, and so I could take the wind and take the hills and all the other stuff better than a lot of the real petite, skinny guys. So I'm in this race, and, it, and, and, and around mile 35 or so, my toe starts to ache just terribly, and, and I start to feel kind of ill because I was nibbling on some bars and drinking carbonated drinks. I'm starting to feel kind of ill. And this goes on, and, and, and I, this whole time I'm racing against this Australian guy. We're going back and forth, back and forth. But as I start to feel ill around 35 miles or so, he starts to pull away from me. And I didn't know it, but we were fighting for the 25th and 26th position in this. We were number, and being in the top 25 is important because that gets you into Ultra Runner magazine and you get kind of in this Hall of Fame thing. But I didn't know that at the time. I just wanted to beat this Aussie guy. So we're going back and forth. He starts pulling away from me. I'm feeling sick. My toe is starting to really ache because it's, you know, just, it's happened sometimes when your toe's hitting the, your, 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 the top of your tennis shoe and the pressure's building up underneath. But around mile 50, all of a sudden, two things happened really close together. One, I barfed up everything I've been eating. Just barfed it up, and it felt great. <laughs> and then my toe exploded. I, I, I was running, and I'm happy because I don't want to feel ill, but I was limping really bad because of my toe. But all of a sudden, it stopped aching. Ah, and then I felt some warm liquid in there. 
squishy, squishy. I look down and my, 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 my shoe is all red. <laughs> but there's no more pain. So I'm not that he's saying there's no more pain. I'm like, yeah, bring it on. You cut it all joy when you fall into suffering. And so I went after that Aussie in mile 60 in a 62-mile race. I passed him and came in 25th in the world championships. There you go. Hey, I was a young whippersnapper, let me tell you. But see, yeah, so there's a glory kind of thing that you're going for there. Uh, you know, or just to get your best times. Paul is, is, is saying that, like, that's what an athlete does when you're in training for an important race. And if you're that dedicated, that disciplined, ready to pour everything out, for the reward of getting an earthly wreath, a, a little trophy, oh, a top 25, if you're willing to do that much work to get that, how much more should we be willing to pour ourselves out in discipline for the heavenly reward that we have in Christ Jesus? Amen? That's what Paul's saying here. And it occurred to me that I have never been as intentional about my own character development as I was about that ultramarathoning. Because he's talking about character development, to develop your character, to make it conform to Jesus Christ. That's not only very important, that's all important. Amen. And so how much more should we be pulling our, pouring ourselves out for this? So what drove me in, in all that discipline was a vision. I had a vision of, of how good it would feel to run like this and be out in nature. I, you know, a vision that motivates us. Everything we do is motivated by an internal vision. Of, of, of what it will bring for us. And, and this is true for every major achievement we do in life. The person who's really going to be invested into music has got to be incredibly disciplined about that. And they have a vision that drives them. The person who wants to be really successful in business, they just pour themselves out into that. And there's a vision that drives them. You want to excel in science or in anything, it requires discipline. And all those things give you a little temporary earthly reward. What Paul is saying is how much more important is it for us to be disciplined on developing our character for this heavenly reward. This is all about faith, you guys. As I share here quite frequently, that vision that drives us, that motivates us, that determines all of our actions, it's simply faith. So, so the author of Hebrews defines faith this way. Faith is the substantiating of things that you hold for. That word there is hypostasis, substantiating. It, 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 it's conceiving of something you hope for or anticipate or expect in a, in a substantial way as though it was real. And then faith is the conviction of things unseen. Because as you envision this thing that you hope for, you anticipate. Winning that race, getting that achievement, getting that promotion, whatever it is you're striving for and being disciplined about, that vision is what drives you to do it. Take away the vision, it doesn't happen. But it's all about faith. You have faith, you see it as a substantial reality. That creates in you a conviction that it will be so. And that motivates you now to live in a certain way, to act in a certain way. It doesn't mean that you're certain about the outcome of things. When you pray with faith for a person to be healed or whatever, it doesn't mean that you know for certain they're going to be healed, because you can't know that. You can't. Let's not pretend. But you see it as though it's happening. You want, you believe this is God's will, and so you're pushing in that direction. And you don't know what the outcome will be, but you know it will, you'll leave the situation more kingdomized than it was before you prayed. So faith is what drives us, what motivates us. And you ask, well, what does this all have to do with, with, with how we handle suffering? And the answer is this. 
The kind of faith that you have about your life and about the world will completely reframe, will determine what suffering means to you, how you respond to suffering, whether it's going to be best beneficial in your life. And most important, and hear this, faith in the New Testament, hear this, faith in the New Testament, it's all about a faith to become a certain kind of person, to have a certain kind of a character that is fit for a certain kind of a kingdom. This is the whole New Testament. We have faith to develop a certain kind of character, become a certain kind of person that's now compatible with this coming kingdom. And more specifically, it's become a kind of person who is conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and the love of Jesus Christ, and therefore is fit for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's what this whole thing is about. That's what we're to be striving to accomplish the power of the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to reflect on this passage. It's a classic one when it comes to the meaning of suffering in our life. Um, it's, it's quoted all the time on the problem of evil kind of things. It's Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And Paul says this, Since we're justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because you have faith, you're justified. Now you're, you've got this congruity with, with God through Jesus Christ. Through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. We boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. And not only that, but we also boast in our afflictions. Knowing that affliction produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So Paul says, by faith we have access to this grace. And this grace is our identity in Christ Jesus. It's our union with, with, with Jesus Christ. Where everything that belongs to God, to Jesus by nature, is given to us by grace. And we're blessed with every spiritual blessing. His love, his peace, his joy, it's given to us. That's our identity in Christ. We have that by faith. We stand in his grace. But grace is, is we have to always remember, this grace is, is, is forgiveness and mercy, but it's also empowering. It's also transformative. If you're really standing in grace, it changes you. It can help but change you. And so as Paul stands in this grace, there's two claims that he makes, two things he boasts about. And when you hear the word boast, don't think that like he's bragging, but, but rather he's not doing what I was doing earlier when I talked about my coming in 25th. It's rather saying, this is what I stake my claim on. I'm proud to claim this. I stake my life on this. There's two things he stakes his life on. First of all, <coughs> is the hope of sharing in the glory of God. The hope of sharing in the glory of God. Uh, it's an incredible, incredible statement if you think about it. Sharing in the glory of God. Uh, there's a lot of Christian circles where that concept would be considered sinful, blasphemous. Sharing in the glory of God. God doesn't share his glory with anyone. God only glorifies himself. This is how the thinking goes. Uh, God, God will not share his glory. Uh, in fact, the whole, he creates everything and decrees everything for his glory to show what he can do. That's how a lot of Christians think about God's glory. I submit to you that the New Testament understanding of God's glory is very different from that. Uh, you know, it's true that in the Old Testament, in Isaiah in particular, you have a, one chapter where the Lord says, I will not give my glory to another. But he's talking about idols there, idols. He's not going to give his glory. He's not going to share his glory with these, these false idols. But in the New Testament, see, God's glory is simply the radiance of his character, his other-oriented love. 
And, and, and because his glory is other-oriented love, God wants to give it away. In fact, giving it away is the point of the whole thing. He wants to share his glory, the radiance of his other-oriented love. That's, that, that's, that's the story that we're living in. And so in John 17, for example, Jesus says, says this. I don't have it written out, but he says, The glory that you've given me, he's praying to the Father, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them so that they may be one even as we are one. So the, the glory that the Father poured out on Jesus from the foundation of the world, that same glory is now being given to us. And this is the glory that was put on display in the cross. That's why Jesus always identified the cross, his crucifixion, as the hour in which he glorified the Father. He's putting on display that God's other-oriented love. Doggone, this thing just falling out, out of me. Now listen, stay. I command it to stay in Jesus' name. Now it will stay. All right. All right, all right. Yeah, so it's a glory that can be given away. So Paul boasts in this hope of sharing in the glory of God, being completely transformed into in the other-oriented love of God. Um, it's incredible, because when you're talking about God's glory, if it's God, it's maximal, right? We sang about it earlier. God's love, there is no limit. There's no bottom to his ocean. There's no top to his mountain. There's no end to the sky. God's love is unlimited. Everything about God is unlimited. So to share the glory of God, this is an unsurpassable glory. And God's beauty is, is an unsurpassable beauty. His love is an unsurpassable love. And the end game of this thing that we're a part of is we get to share in that. So if you understand what Paul's saying here, you couldn't have a higher or a greater or a more beautiful goal than this. This is as good as it gets. The maximal glory, maximal life, maximal goodness, we are going to be sharing in that forever and ever and ever. That's the greatest promise you could possibly ever hear. Hallelujah. Amen. John gets at it. We read this passage last week or the week before. He says this, See what love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is because it didn't know him. My beloved, we are God's children now. But what we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this, that when he, when Jesus is revealed, the end, when he returns, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. And all who have this hope in him purify themselves, even as he is pure. The principle here is that it's a common ancient assumption. It's true that, that like is known by like. You can only understand the love of another person to the degree that you have a love that's capable, has the capacity of receiving that love. And, and, and so like is known by like. So right now, to the degree that we're not like him, we don't fully see him as he is. We don't conceive of him. We don't understand him fully as he is. But we know this, that in the end, we will see him as he is, for we will be like him right now. We are the children of God. Because we're in this grace place where we're identified with Christ Jesus, and, and we, we, God declares that we're holy and blameless and spotless. All the other things, uh, we're blessed with every spiritual blessing. He declares that to be true, and so it is true. But it's obviously, obviously not yet true in our own experience, right? It, it, we don't all look completely like we're holy and blameless and spotless and completely transformed by the love of God. But God says we are. So there's this gap between what God says is real and what we experience is real. There's a gap. And the whole goal of the Christian life, the whole goal of discipleship, and this is the job of the Holy Spirit working in our life, is to empower us 
to bring our experience in line with God's declaration of truth. The whole, the whole job of, of Christian discipleship is actually becoming who God says we already are. But because, because God always treats us as a person, he, he doesn't just wave a magic wand and transform us. We have always got to be working with the Holy Spirit, yielding to the Holy Spirit to be transformed into this image. Increasingly sharing in the glory of God because we're increasingly becoming in the image of this other-oriented love. With all the fruit of the Spirit that goes with us, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness. We shall see him as he is. So, f brothers and sisters, when this thing is done, when, 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 this, when God finally wraps this, this story up, and we go into this, because you know, this whole story that we're a part of now is simply the training ground for what's coming. In some sense, this isn't even real. This is the warm-up thing, right? Uh, we're, we're, this is the preparation time for what is coming. But when the process is done, when God is done refining us with his love, when the discipleship is all done, when, when, when the lies have all been burned away and the wounds have all been healed, and the conflicts have all been resolved, and the sin has been removed, let me tell you, you are going to look marvelous. <laughs> you are going to look stunning. You're going to be glorious. Uh, C.S. Lewis has this in his book, Until We Have Faces. He says that when we see each other, when, when God has, has finished his work with all of us, and we're transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ, when we see one another at the end, uh, it will be so, we, we will be so awestruck with one another that we'll be tempted to worship. It's like, whoa, look at you, check you out. Because we'll be shining with the radiance of God. I can't wait to see that. We'll know each other as we are. But now we'll be in this glorified state with all the stuff in our life that's not compatible with sin. Finally burned away, finally removed. And now we shine with the shininess of Jesus Christ. Like on the model of transfiguration, it will be glorious. You're going to look marvelous. And Paul tells us, we saw this last week, Romans 8, 19. The entire creation is waiting eagerly. It's yearning for the revelation of the children of God. The entire creation, every plant out there, I can't wait. Every rock, every tree, every bush, can't wait for those humans to get their act together. You know, they're yearning. What will it look like when, 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 when God finally transforms these people? Because we are the ones who are placed here. We're the landlords of this planet, right? We're responsible for this planet. So the whole planet is yearning for us as its, as, as, as its caretakers to get reconciled with God and to be revealed as the children of God that we really are. Because when we are set right, the whole creation, Creation will be set right, and then the whole creation will, in its own way, reflect the glory and the light uh, of God. And that's the purpose for everything, amen? The whole creation joining in uh, th th this dance. That's why Paul said that the sufferings of this present age, he says, I, I, I don't even consider the sufferings of this present time to be worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed. Which simply means the glory is going to be unimaginable. Unimaginable. That's the direction that we're hitting. And, and, and see, it's, it's, it's that vision that Paul has that makes him willing to completely accept afflictions. And this brings me to the second thing Paul boasts about. He doesn't just boast about the fact that he has this hope of sharing in the glory of God. Because he has the hope of sharing in the glory of God, he embraces these afflictions. Now, it's also true that he'll pray to be delivered from these afflictions. And if he is delivered from these afflictions, he thanks God for that. But when he's not delivered, such as he was when he wrote the letter to the Philippians, because he was in prison at that time, when he's not delivered, he still gives thanks. In fact, the truth is, if you study his letters, 
Paul expresses more joy when he's in prison than any other time in his life. Philippians is the most joyful book that, that, that he wrote. There's this, this joy that is there. He embraces this. He's not embarrassed by these afflictions. No, bring it on. That's kind of his attitude. Now, he wants, he prays to be delivered, but he's also okay if he's, if he's not because he trusts that God can use these afflictions to further him to the goal of being transformed in the likeness of Christ, and that's all that matters. If that's all that matters, then, then, then it doesn't matter whether you're suffering or not, as long as you're moving in the direction of Christ's likeness. He embraces that, because this is, the, this is the point of everything. And so this is the prize that Paul is always striving for, the goal. And it comes out in all of his letters. He's got this vision, this glorious, unimaginably beautiful vision that he yearns for, and that he believes the whole creation is yearning for, and that's what drives him. To discipline himself the way he, he does. He says this in, in, in Philippians 3. I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Whatever value you've got and the goals that you're striving for, whatever values you've got and what you're trying to achieve and why you get out of bed in the morning, I don't know what they are. But, but, but the goal of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord, it, sur it surpasses that. Because this is the eternal wreath, all right? Not a temporal wreath. He says, it's for his sake that I've suffered loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He considers them rubbish. The word there is scubula, and it actually can mean excrement. Luther, in his German translation of the Bible, he translated it scheist, for those of you who know German. Uh, it's, it's crap! Yeah, he, he was a big shot, a big rabbi, really respected, tribe of Benjamin, all that learning. You know, he had it going on. And now he looks at it and he goes, that's a bunch of crap. Not that it's bad or anything. Fine, you want to be that, be that. But compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, that's crap. Now, Paul is standing in the grace of God here, and he knows he already belongs to God. He's not talking about, I hope I can be saved. What he's expressing here is a yearning to know Christ. He, he's already saved, but he wants to know him more. And to know, like is known by like. To know him, you must be transformed into his image. And so he's, he's yearning for this transformation, that he can know the, the, the full glory of, of Christ and know him in his sufferings. And that value surpasses every other value. Because that's what we are created for. This is the value that gives us joy. This is all part of sharing in the glory of God. And so, so when it comes to this discipline and discipleship, see, we often think of it as an ought and a should and a gotta do. How have you been reading your Bibles lately? How many souls do you save this year? How, you know, when, yeah, you know that, oughts and shoulds, and we've all been through that. See, this isn't about that. This is about getting a vision, a vision that is so compelling, so beautiful, that it makes you want to do the oughts and the shoulds and the gotta do's. Because you want that, you're driving for that. It's no different than the kind of vision, the kind of faith that you have when you're training, training for ultra marathons or, or working for a business or, or whatever you're trying to achieve. It's just that this is that. Mary, did your phone just go off? Oh, this is precious. Please turn off your cell phones at the present time because they could interrupt your ADHD pastor. And now Mary, you're supposed to set an example for all the people. Now look at you. Naughty Mary. Uh, this is why John said in, in, in 1 John 3, he, he, we read it, he goes, that all who have this hope, this hope of, of being like him, being transformed to his likeness, see him as he is, sharing in the glory of God, all who have this hope, they purify themselves now because he's pure. 
Seeing that purity, you want that, so you purify yourself. Seeing that glory, seeing that joy, seeing you as the, the, the most loving version of you that you can possibly be, because that's what it will be like in the end when God's done with you. And seeing that, it makes you want this. You purify yourself now as he is pure. Whatever's inconsistent with that, I want to get rid of now. So I can share more of that now and head in that direction. That's the prize. That's everything for Paul. It's why he was willing to shipwreck all the rest. He doesn't care. He, he never feels sorry for himself. He never, he's had a lot of suffering brought his way, whipped and all the rest. Never once has he complained about it. No, it's, it's just like it is what it is. He accepts it for what it is, but he turns it over to God and gives thanks for what it can do in his life. Because if it brings me closer to the goal of Jesus Christ, then it's all worth it. Now, here's the problem that we face. It's we in the West and we Americans in particular, but I think everybody listening can apply this in some way into their life. The challenge is this. Uh, we don't anymore, very, very rarely is it the case that uh, we tell our kids, the kind of person you are is the most important thing in your life and remind them that this is what they should be striving for every day, to be as loving, as kind, as patient, as gracious, as generous as possible. That's the goal of life. That's the purpose of life. We don't talk that way. In fact, we talk very little about character. Paul Eddy was just telling me last night about research he found where they were looking at uh, this, this, all, this whole library of articles that were written over this 100-year period of time, and they showed how even in like 1900, character was always talked about, even in academic journals. It was, character was important. The education it was about developing character. Even public schools, character was important. But that has just completely been lost, and then what's it's been replaced by uh, yeah, personal happiness. Like, what will just please you? Character is becoming important. So this idea of having a vision that makes us want to transform our character, it's foreign to us. And even worse than that, to the degree that we have a vision of what life is about, a vision for our life, it tends to be, the purpose of our life is to be happy. Whether we say it or not, that tends to be the thing that drives us, gets us out of bed in the morning, that we think most about. We want to be happy. It's in our constitution, for crying out loud. Right? That everyone has a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so it's, it's part of the air that we breathe. Pursuing happiness is everything. And happiness, we assume, is the good life. You're happy when things are going your way, when things are, when you have comfort, as much comfort as possible. You want the good life, as much convenience as possible. The good life, maybe as, as much power as possible, as much respect as possible, as much fame as possible, as many toys and trinkets to distract yourself and cabins to go to and boats to ride on and, and all the rest. The good life. And at the very least, the good life means you avoid suffering. If you want to be happy, you have to avoid suffering. And see, to the degree that we accept this mindset, and to some degree, I bet we do, most of us, without knowing it, we just sort of absorb it. Yeah. And see, of course you want to be happy. Of course, everyone wants to be happy, and everyone wants to, be, to, to avoid suffering. But if that becomes sort of the purpose of our life, then, then when suffering happens, folks, well, then the only meaning that suffering has is that it's interrupting the purpose of your life. It's interfering with your best life now, and the assumption of the whole thing is that this is the only life that you've got. And so you're living to have your best life now, your happiest life now, when suffering happens. All you can do is hate it and be mad at it, be disgruntled by it. The last thing you're going to do is say, hey, count it all joy when you fall into affliction. 
Why? Because the suffering isn't, isn't producing anything in the future. It's just interrupting your happiness. See, we all want to be happy and we all want to avoid suffering. That's normal. Don't feel bad about that. You pray to get out of the suffering. You get help to get out of the suffering. That's fine. But as long as you're in the suffering, as we've said the last couple of weeks, the question is, what do you do with that? And, and see, in the kingdom, yeah, in the kingdom, we, we, we would like to avoid suffering if possible. And we'd like to be happy if possible. But it's not the purpose of our life. It's not the purpose of our life. The purpose of our life is to know Jesus Christ more and more and therefore to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ more and more. To purify ourselves as he is pure. That's the, the whole purpose of this life is a training ground for that. Preparing for that eternal kingdom. Because nothing unclean can get into that kingdom. That's the purpose of our life. And see, you can't embrace this as the purpose of your life. The goal, the prize of being a part of this, this eternal kingdom. And sharing in the glory of God. If you embrace that, it's going to conflict with this idea that the goal of your life is happy. It's going to conflict. It can't help it. Because the kingdom, as I often say around here, it starts with your first drop of blood. The kingdom starts with sacrifice. It always looks like Calvary. It always involves some sort of sacrifice for others. The very thing that happiness wants to avoid. And so you find Jesus teaching all sorts of things like this. Matthew chapter 10. He says that if, if you lose your life, those who find their life, you're trying to find your life now. Have your best life now. Grab it all now. You're going to lose your life. But those who lose their life, for my sake, they'll find their life. If you want to know Christ and enter into the joy of knowing Christ, you've got to die to this old self. You've got to die to that self that wants to play the world's game. I can't believe this thing. It fell off again. What is it about my pocket today? It's just not working here. Okay. And I commanded it in Jesus' name. So that, this thing is of the devil, man. I rebuke you. Be loose, to foul demon of hell. Now stay put. All right. Now it'll work. I showed that microphone thing who's boss. All right. See, you, so you've got to die to that self that's worried about imaging. And how, what do people think about me? And, and, and who likes me? And who doesn't like me? How popular am I? You've got to die to that, that whole game of, of success and trying to have your happy best life now. But if you're willing to die to that self, see, that self is the source of all your misery. <laughs> That's all your disquietude, all your anxiety is wrapped up because you're playing this world's game of I've got to get it now, I've got to get it now, I've got the thing like now. I, and, and, and so all suffering is just you hate it because it's just an interruption of the whole thing. Die to that, and then you find real life. You find real life. In some ways, I could say, we've got to die to the, You know, I'm really glad that we live in a country where you can, are free to pursue happiness. I think everyone should be free to pursue happiness, whatever you want to. You know, that's fine. I'm glad. I'm not anti-American when I'm saying this, but for kingdom people, you've got to realize that there's an anti-Christ dimension to this idea of pursuit of happiness. Because to enter into the joy of the kingdom, you might have to die to this pursuit of happiness. If, 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 so, long, so long as you're playing that happiness game, pursuing happiness, you're going to miss out on the joy of learning what self-sacrificial love is all about. You're chasing happiness. You'll miss out on the joy of, 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 of caring about the well-being of others more than yourself. There really is a joy to that. The joy of living with outrageous generosity towards others. The joy of, of, of getting all your life from Christ rather than pathetically trying to get it from other people. If you're playing that happiness game, searching for happiness, wanting it here and now, you're going to miss the joy of, 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 of discovering 
God at the bottom of your, your pain, the joy of, of seeing what God can do with the pain in your life. You're going to miss the joy of living life with an outstanding purpose, an outstanding goal, an outstanding vision that is unimaginably glorious and that moves you and changes you. If you're pursuing the happiness dream, you're going to miss the kingdom dream. If you want to find the joy of the kingdom, die to that personal happiness thing. And the thing is, is that if you do that, I guarantee you, you'll find out you'll be, you're, you're going to be more happy. That's I, as long as you're chasing it, you're not going to get it. But if you just forget about it, you'll, be, you'll get it. But you also get the joy of the kingdom. So I, I, I want to ask by, by, by just saying this. I, I just would like us to ask the Holy Spirit to give us this vision. I, I, I don't know how else to guide this or to teach this. Um, we got to get what Paul had. We, 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 this, an idea of, uh, it's not just a, a vision of you as the most loving version of you as possible, but it's a version of you because it's other-oriented love, it also has to include others. A vision of you involves a vision of the entire kingdom, and that's what led Paul on. And, and that vision comes out in different ways. He says, I'm compelled by the love of Christ that if one died for all, all have died. That was part of his vision. The Christ that embraces all of humanity. And so right now, I, I, I would just like us to close your eyes if it helps, but ask the Holy Spirit to give you a vision. I'm not looking for anything outstanding right this moment, but some kind of idea. And you see, if you're conceiving of it rightly, then it ought to be so glorious, so beautiful that you yearn for it. What does your heart yearn for? What does your heart yearn for? Can you conceive of that? And however beautiful you are thinking about it, know this, that it's better than that. So just keep on going in that direction. Because if the sufferings of this present age can't be compared to this glory, well then this glory, as I said last week, the beauty of this glory is greater than the Holocaust is dark. Conceive that. What do you look like when you're free of all your crap, your scubula? Can you get a picture of this? What do you look like when you and all you know, and all, when the entire creation has been purified of all that's contrary to love and now reflects in its own way the love of the triune God? What do you look like in fellowship with others as you've, you're learning to love together? <laughs> and can you get a vision of yourself free of the bodily limitations of this life and the pain, the aggravations, of the, free of the lies and the deceptions and the wounds. What do you look like in all your beauty when you're shining with the radiance of the glory of God? Get a picture of that. This is what you're created for. This is the dream. This is, this is what God has destined you for. But you've got to be able to see it. And then can you, in faith, affirm it? See it as concrete as possible, as vividly as possible, however you do this in your imagination. The most glorious destination you can imagine. And now affirm that this is true, because Jesus rose from the dead. This isn't just a pipe dream, a pie in the sky when you die by and die, some kind of groundless hope, wishful thinking. No, this is, Jesus rose from the dead. It proves that the kingdom is coming, and this transformation will happen. Can you see this? And then finally, whatever suffering is part of your life right now, whether it's physical suffering or whether it's emotional, relational suffering, maybe spiritual suffering, whatever it is you're bearing, have that vision in front of you. And given that vision, 
of what you shall be, can you offer up this suffering to God and say, God, use this suffering as much as I hate it, as bad as it is, as much as I hope it goes away tomorrow. But right now, use it to further move me in the direction of that. Because that is all important. That is everything. That's why we exist. You get that vision and you will be growing in Christ. Take away that vision and everything the New Testament says about discipleship and suffering makes no sense whatsoever. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will help us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We have been conditioned, programmed in various ways and various degrees to just pursue happiness. And see, suffering is nothing more than a nuisance. God, change our vision of our life, of our world, of what we're here for. Make it clear, make it beautiful, make it vivid. Make it so that we yearn for it. Lord, Holy Spirit, help us to get this vision that's of surpassing value, surpasses everything that this world has to offer. In fact, next to this beautiful vision, everything the world has to offer is crap. And remind us daily that this is every day. The goal of every day, the purpose of every day, of every moment, of every conversation is to manifest this and move towards the goal of knowing Christ and being transformed into his image. Remind us, Holy Spirit. We give you permission to nag us as much as necessary to help us remember. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, Amen. And all the people online said, okay, good. Good to hear that. Hey, don't forget, Tuesday we got the Muse cast. We're going to go a little deeper with the message. Uh, we got gathering groups. We're going to go deeper with the message and talk about stuff. Get to meet people and develop, develop spiritual friendships. That's great. And, and we have prayer available in the service right here. And uh, whoa. Hey, look at this. All right. This has just turned into a, I need this. I really need, I need this. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Here, you can have mine. That would have saved my computer right there. Woo! All right. Hey, uh, prayer's available online up here. Get it if you need it. God bless you guys. Love you. Go out and don't forget why you're here, what you live for, what the purpose of life is. Pursue that vision. It's the most important thing in your life. God bless you. Love you.